This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Bridget Schulte is director of the Better Life Lab at New America. The Better Life Lab offers ways to restructure our workplaces and social policy using original research and policy analysis. Before she joined New America, Bridget was an award-winning journalist for The Washington Post and part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2008. Her great book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time, was a New York Times bestseller. It provides a practical perspective on time management based on her personal experience and research. She shines a light on overwork, burnout, and our national obsession with being and appearing to be busy, digging into the causes of what to do about these pernicious problems to reduce the toll they take on our lives. In this episode, Bridget recalls some of her own experiences in being overwhelmed and how that informs her book and the knowledge generously offered in it. We talk about working mothers and how their time management plays out differently than it does for other workers. She provides enlightening examples of various work schedules from around the world, as well as stories that translate into practical advice about how not to feel so out of control in today's frenetic world. All of us can benefit from the wisdom Bridget Schulte offers. So now, get set to listen to and learn from New America's director of the Better Life Lab. It's Bridget Schulte. Bridget, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Bridget has a lot of wisdom on this topic, not not only personally one, but well-researched and, and beautifully argued and presented in this in this wonderful book. Tell us what inspired you to write the book in the first place. Oh, <laughs> I've described this as an accidental book. Um, I was a completely overwhelmed working mother of two. I worked full-time. I felt very guilty. I didn't really ever stop to think about it. I just thought, well, maybe this is the price that I have to pay for being a working mother. Um, I, I was incredibly over-involved. I think I did everything. I was, uh, you know, not only the second shift, but come holidays, the third shift, doing everything and feeling sort of exhausted and resentful most of the time about let, it. Let me just jump in here and define second shift, third shift. That That's a term that refers to Arlie Hochschild, the sociologist wrote about 25 years ago. Exactly. That moms work not just at work, but when they come home, they're working another shift. And so now you were talking about a third shift? Yeah, I describe holidays as the third shift for women uh, because you women are traditionally expected to put on the holidays, uh, do the kin work, the reaching out to keep the family bond strong, creating the magic of the moment uh, for, for holidays. 
uh, that's still very strong in our kind of traditionally gendered roles. Uh, so, yeah, come Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or, uh, you know, whatever the holidays are that you celebrate, most, most of the time it's women doing a lot of the work and the planning. Mm-hmm. So, so I was very much caught in, up in that. And I really didn't think much uh, uh, that it could be different. I, uh, I, everybody else that I knew was feeling this way. Lots of other women and mothers were feeling guilty and overwhelmed and sort of angry with their husbands. <laughs> And feeling guilty if they took any time for themselves mm-hmm. um, and worried about their kids and whether they were, uh, you know, doing right by them, by by working. And honestly, it was only when a sociologist who studies time, a time use researcher, told me that I had 30 hours of leisure a week. And I about fell out of my chair and I said, you're out of your mind. I do not. Wait a minute. So... So this person did a time you study of your actual life or just said in general people like you have 30 hours of leisure? Yeah, he said in general. He, I see. He, sort of the grand averages. He said women like you have 30 hours. He said all women have 30 hours of leisure a week. He said women have more leisure time now than they did in the 1960s, even though more of them are working in the marketplace. So this is uh, above and beyond sleep, of course, he was saying. But that's right, right. <laughs> and that just that statement just was so out of the realm of my imagination. It's, it just completely didn't even, it's like it didn't even exist on the same planet that I lived on. I just said, you're out of your mind. Uh-huh. And he, then he challenged me to keep a time diary myself. He oh, said, okay. keep a time diary and I will show you where your leisure is. And so that's, uh, that's really what started this entire book is I, I kept a time diary and I began to write not only sort of what I was doing, which is a traditional time diary, but how I was feeling about it, which is a, kind of a, a newer version of keeping a time diary, which I would argue is a much realer sense because our, uh-huh. our experience of time, is, our perception is very much what shapes uh, you know, what our time feels like. It's really more about quality than quantity, isn't right. it? Right, and it's about how you feel about it. That's, that's, right. that's much more real than saying, I was on a bike ride. Well, if you're on a bike ride, it looks like leisure on the outside, but if you're worried and you're thinking about a million things and the thing you forgot to do at work and the memo you, memo you still need to send and the carpool you got to arrange and the groceries you got to buy, you know, all of that kind of contaminates your time, right. all of that kind of mental rumination. It's what some psychologists call psychological interference. Yes. Right? of one role on another. Right. It, the, the worries what's in your mind invades from one part to another. So yeah. you so you kept a time diary. So and I, I kept a time diary, so I had both of the real time and the contaminated time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, he, he analyzed it, he took out a yellow highlighter, which is why I love the cover of the book so much, and he highlighted... Ah, the cover of the book has words... Yellow highlighted. Highlighter on it. And and he highlighted 27 hours of what he called leisure time. So he was right. Well, I looked at that time and I about burst into tears because to me that didn't feel at all like leisure. It was 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, little bits and scraps of time that when I considered what I think of leisure, how I would define leisure in my eyes, was nothing like the time that he said counted as leisure. For instance, there was a time I I had taken my daughter to a ballet class and the car broke down on the way home and we were stuck on the side of the road for two hours waiting for a tow truck. Time to party. And he called that leisure time. And I'm like, (laughs) you're kidding. 
And he said, oh, that's right, you're with your daughter, so that's child care. Technically, that's child care. And I said, so if I had been by myself, that would have been leisure time? And he said, yes. And so that really started this journey of trying to understand, well, what is leisure time? You know, what, what, uh, what does it mean that, you know, to have that kind of that sense of refreshing your soul that the Greek said was the point of a good life? Uh, and if I didn't have any of that kind of time, why not? And was there a way that, that I and other sort of imperfect souls like me could find it? So what did you do, Bridget? Well, I, I described this book, Research, as really a journey. Um, I, I took a leave of, uh, of absence from the Washington Post. I was supported very gener- graciously by the New America Foundation to begin, to begin really looking. I wanted to use my skills as a reporter and as a journalist. I've been a journalist for over 20 years. I wanted to use those same skills and look very deeply at modern life. Uh, and so what I very quickly learned is that you cannot look at leisure time without looking at what Eric Erickson called the, the three great arenas of life, that they're also interconnected. If you want to know what happened to leisure, you have to know what's happening at work. And if you want to know what's happening at work, you have to understand what's happening in the home sphere and with love. So work, love, and play, that's where the subtitle comes from. Mm-hmm. The three great arenas of life are very interconnected. And so uh, what I found is that our workplaces are still very much organized as if, uh, as if no one has families, <laughs> as if the best workers are the ones who can work all hours, all the time, particularly now with technology, that hours and face time are rewarded rather than flexibility and performance. Um, I found that our gender roles at home are still very much um, very traditional. Uh, there's a lot of sort of unconscious sliding into traditional roles. It's very powerful that I found that my husband and I had slid into without ever intending to. Uh, and then I really discovered how in this country we do not value leisure time. We value busyness and being productive. And we tend to think that that comes from working, not just working hard, but almost overworking, uh, that we've got a real culture now that uh, I call it busyness as a badge of honor, uh, where uh, you, you almost brag about how busy you are, and that's how we show our status to one another. Is that still as intense as it once was? I, I recall like you know, bragging about how early your first meeting was in the 80s. Well, I had a 4.30 breakfast meeting, and I, so I'm cooler and tougher than you. You know, that was kind of standard. My sense now, though, is that especially among younger people, there's uh, more talk about, well, here's the cool thing I did over the weekend or here's this great vacation that I'm taking or, you know, here's some you know, spiritual journey that I'm going to embark upon. It seems to me that the tide is starting to turn there, uh, particularly on, among young people. Do you, do you see it differently? I think that there's some great hope and, and some real excitement around young people and, you know, whether you want to call them Gen Y or millennials, that there are different, they are, there are different values. There are things that, that they are valuing that perhaps people in my generation, I'm in my early 50s, felt, you know, had to be so much more work devoted. Mm. And I think a lot of that, when I've talked with young people, they look at uh, men and women, particularly women like me, and they say, I don't want what you had. Uh, you know, I still think that I can work. I still think I can make a, a really excellent contribution. But I think there's also science, human performance science, motivation science. There's there's new science that's emerging that's showing that all of that face time and overwork actually doesn't make us more productive. It doesn't make us more innovative or creative. And in fact, it really burns us out yeah. and leads to disengagement. Burnout is so, real. 
I think that they're, they're that we're getting smarter about it. Mm-hmm. At least the younger generations are, and now we just have to convince all the people in power who set the who set the tone for all of those work workplaces. You're absolutely right, and I'm sure many of our listeners would agree that in so many of the work environments that that we find ourselves, it really is not that way. Well, and I went out specifically looking for hope, and so you're right. I found what uh, you know, Chip and Dan Heath, the, the authors, they call bright spots. Uh, I was very I was very troubled when I first started this book, thinking I don't want to just find out how bad everything is. I want to find some hope. I want to be I want to find inspiration. Yes. And um, I, I spoke with Dan Heath after a conference, and and I and I said I was really troubled. I wasn't quite sure how to do that. I didn't want to just give you know, sort of facile platitudes or advice. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm not a self-help guru. I, you know, I'm still a work in progress myself. And his advice was look for bright spots, real-world places where things are already shifting. And so I have, uh, I have whole chapters where things are shifting and that are in very exciting ways. All right, so give us, give us one example. Sure. I, I've got several, but for instance, Menlo Innovations, a software company, uh, you know, in the high-tech field in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, wants to value the whole person, really sees the value in having a full life. Uh, you are, just like France, you are looked down upon if you answer emails or cell phones after work hours. Every, they work short, intense, bounded hours. Once you're gone, you're supposed to be gone. Uh, one woman came in and was working 70-hour weeks like she had in other high-tech fields, and they said, if you cannot figure out how to do your job in 40 hours, we will fire you. Wow. She said, I had to go home and learn how to have a life. So that was compulsory. It was. It was. And they do, uh, they do great work. Um, uh, you know, ClearSpire is a law firm. You know, talk about uh, billable hours, uh, ideal worker culture. They, they've blown up that whole billable hours model. And, uh, and they have lawyers who are actually making time for their lives. And, you know, not just for families, but there's a, a young single uh, man who I, I interview in the book. And he said, look, people, single people need to have lives as well. Mm-hmm. And he, he says he's doing the same work, same excellent quality, only now he has time for himself. He knows his neighbors. He's able to volunteer on boards. He's a member of the community, and he spends more time with his family. He's much happier, and he's doing excellent work. Tell us uh, some more of the stories that you found. Well, one of my favorite stories, I have a whole, I I have sort of short, bright spot chapters. I call them chapterlets. Because I wanted the book, you know, if busy, busy people were going to be reading the book, I wanted to make it very accessible for them. And so if all you had time for was a little inspiration, you could read these short, bright spot chapterlets, if you will, and, and start beginning to think in a different way or seeing that change is possible. And honestly, one of my favorites I call, if the Pentagon can do it, why can't you? And it was really astounding. The Pentagon? If the Pentagon can do it, why can't you? No, I heard you. I'm incredulous. Yes, yes because here we think of the Pentagon uh, as the ultimate FaceTime warrior, hardworking, work-long hours kind of culture. You know, the Marines have a saying, pain is just weakness leaving the body. So this is a, a, a really very, you know, like one of the most macho uh, long work hour cultures that you could imagine. And uh, Michelle Flournoy came in. She's a very highly respected um, uh, uh, academic, an expert in uh, defense strategy in the military, uh, has often been talked about as potentially one of the very first women secretaries of defense. She came in as the number three civilian uh, uh, under the, in the Obama administration. 
And she, in her interview with Secretary Gates, said, I will work my rear end off for you, but I'm a mother of three, and there are times that I'm going to be, uh, more often than not, home for dinner when I can, and I'm going to have to have touchstone anchor time with my kids. And he said, fine. And he so supported her in her drive to be authentic, fully present at work and also as present and fully as present she could be with her family at home, that she turned around and said, how can I do that then for my staff? Mm-hmm. And she began to look at it, as she said, I didn't look at this as a working mother issue, which is, I think, one of the problems. We've often thought of work-life issues as kind of women or mother issues. And Tell me said, about it. I couldn't agree more. Right. She said, I saw this as a human capital issue. Of course. Because what she saw were people in her office overworked, long hours, burned out, fried, never seeing their families. And she said a lot of the people in her office were between deployments. So they were coming from a very stressful combat environment, and this was supposed to be their home leave, and yet they were never seeing their families. So what did she do? Only to go back to a combat environment. So Mm -hmm. what she did is she brought in consultants. She took pulse surveys to kind of get a sense of where people, how they were feeling. She brought in a consultant to try to figure out, well, how could we do this differently? Uh, She put two young fathers uh, in charge of this effort. Um, Good move. Right. Uh, you know, because to, it was to make not, to destigmatize it as a women's issue or right. to take it out of the women's ghetto, as it were. Exactly. To destigmatize it, that mm-hmm. this was about how are we going to work smarter? She made a real point of saying this is not about working less. This is about working smarter. And it, what was important to her is that this was the policy shop where they had to think long term policy. They had to think strategically. They needed to be fresh to see. Uh, to think more clearly, to see things and make connections that they they would never have made if they were tired and thinking in kind of like old, you know, burned out butt in the chair kind of ways, which is how you get after you spend too many hours in the office. And so they came up with what they called an alternative work schedule. Uh, And uh, after a certain number of hours and a certain period of time, you got the rest of your time back if you worked those hours. It was the rest was yours, and they brought in, uh, like I said, these consultants. They trained the managers, which is really important. She also put, she also made sure that this um, this work schedule was uh, implemented in not just you know like her idea, but in policy, in regulation, in performance evaluation, so that it became infused as part of their culture. And then, you know, the last thing... It wasn't just one program in a one-off way, but it was really built into a number of the different ongoing structures of the of the organization and, and signaled in, in multiple ways so that it, it started to become more imbued with everyday life, in Absolutely. everyday life. Absolutely, because we all know that there are so many corporations and companies out there with wonderful-sounding policies on the books, but the culture is such... That, that nobody takes them because right. they know that it violates the values of the culture, which are overwork. And so she, what she really sought to do was to change or rewire the culture. And she said, I knew that it actually, you know, I knew that it actually worked. When there was one day she had gone to give a speech in the middle of the day, and she turned to the colonel who was with her and said, do you want to ride back to the building, ride back to the Pentagon? And he said, no. I've worked my all my hours that I need to in this pay period, and I'm going to take the rest of the afternoon off to go sledding with my son. 
And she said, I knew... That sounds like success. She said, I knew that it caught on then, because if this guy felt comfortable enough to tell his boss's boss's boss that not only was he not going to go to work, but he was going to go sledding with his son, she said, I knew that it was a success. And now she's left the Pentagon, but uh, she also left... Where is she now? Uh, she is at, uh, she's a consultant. Um, uh, she's also doing, uh, she has a think tank that she has been part of um, doing a lot of work looking at um, uh, national defense strategy. And um, uh, so she's, she's not sort of actively at the Pentagon anymore. And yet. So she's she, not going to be our next Secretary of Defense, you're saying? Well, not at this point. I not, see. not right now, but. Stay tuned, right? Um, but I think what's really important is that, uh, you know, when you talk about the how of change, she also led by example. You know, she was not one of these leaders who gave lip service to having a full, authentic life, but she also lived it herself. Well, it really has to be that way. So that's a fantastic uh, story, especially in, in you know, the work environment that you described at the, the Pentagon. What other bright spots did you uncover? Well, you know, one of the most hopeful things is that it's not just a white-collar, mm-hmm. uh, you know, prerogative, that I found places in the blue-collar world or in the, in the world of hourly workers. Uh, and I think that that's important because a lot of times people think, and there have been time studies that say, oh, you know, this feeling of being overwhelmed is just a yuppie kvetch. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's really not. That uh, I did spend some time with low-income workers who, when I asked them if they had any leisure time, just gave me these blank looks. And finally one person said, maybe when I sleep or when I go to church, you know, what are you talking about? Because yeah. at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, you've got people who are not working extreme hours at one job like we have at the higher end, but you've got them working extreme hours at like two or three different yes. jobs. When you think about just the just getting around daily life uh, when you do not have education or resources, it's really quite humbling. So what did you find among some of those folks that you got to speak with? Well, when you look at what, what causes a lot of overwhelm or stress, it's really two things. An inability to control your time or, or life around you and the inability to predict. Mm-hmm. And so the more you can have a measure of control or a measure of predictability, it eases that sense of stress and overwhelm. So, for instance, places that use really creative and progressive scheduling that allow um, lower-income workers or hourly workers to have more a sense of control over their time um, goes an awful long way to reducing mm-hmm. stress. And mm-hmm. actually, you have better outcomes not only at work, but health outcomes, uh, less fewer sick days, less sure. absenteeism or presenteeism. Now, those actually, are the two main factors that, that cause stress, lack of control, lack of predictability. Right. And, and we've known that for a long time, but it's not easy to build it into a, a work system that that also accounts for the bottom line. Well, what was fascinating is that there are companies where, for instance, receptionists, and that's a classic FaceTime kind of job. Sure. You can't telecommute if you're, a, if you're a receptionist. But they got together and they created pools, and then they, re- they had rotating four-day work weeks. You know, so that was one very exciting thing to see. There was another group. And that helped everybody. That helped That everybody. was something that they all contributed to. Uh, there was a, a health care facility in Georgia. Uh, I spent time talking with people there. Uh, and there were people who worked in the laundry. 
And, you know, you're talking about laundry at a healthcare facility. You need clean linens all the time, every day. But they were also very devoutly religious. They were evangelical Christians, and they wanted Sunday off. The Sabbath was very important to them. They, you know, their their tradition was to have long hours at church, and that was important to them. So they, the workers came together. You know, when the company embraced this, this idea that everyone could set their own schedule, then even the laundry workers said, well, how could we do this? They came up with their own plan, and they said, what if we caught up on the laundry through the week so that every Monday morning you still had the same amount of clean linens that you would need for the rest of the week, but we'd have it all done by Saturday night, then we could have Sunday off. And they said, well, let's give it a try. So they did, and it worked. And so now you've got laundry workers who not only work really hard and very efficiently, but also have time for their own lives. And what's so lovely about that example is the idea of let's give it a try. Let's let's experiment, which is uh, at the heart of what I try to do with my classes and with my clients and what we're doing with this Coursera course, which I mentioned also earlier, that has now 37,000 students in it worldwide. And that's exactly what they're doing. Each and every one of them is going to come up with an experiment something that they're going to do where the the intention is to make things better for themselves personally, for their families, their communities, and for their business. And and your example here is just one more indication that if you take this mindset, and you started with this, the attitude that let's just try something and see what we can do to make it better for us, for me and for you know, my world, it's, it's a lot more likely that you're going to find something new that'll work than if you just assume it can't happen. That's very true. And I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask. You know, we get kind of so beaten down or we're part of these cultures Mm -hmm. that, you know, we see how, you know, goodness gracious, I'm thinking of, you know, the the residents who were working so hard that some of them died, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, we're we're kind of close to the Japanese who have the term karoshi, you know, death from overwork. Mm -hmm. You know, look at what's happening in, in the financial sector. Uh, there is a very strong work devotion in this culture. Uh, you know, it started with the Protestant work ethic, and you can't deny that. And there is really something very honorable in hard work. I think that's a very American trait. And yet we've really confused that now with overwork uh, in a really dangerous way. And I think hopefully one of the things that will be very convincing to people is, you know, when you look at productivity per hour's work and you compare the United States internationally, there are years that France, with its 30 days of paid vacation, its generous family-friendly policies of paid parental leave and uh, paid child care or subsidized child care, and, uh, you know, that they actually come out ahead of us in terms of hourly productivity. Uh, flexibility clearly pays on all dimensions. Let me ask you to say a little bit more about love and play and, and how those enhance not just one's soul but also one's work life. Right. Well, you know, when it comes to love, I looked at what many sociologists call the stalled gender revolution. How is it that we've made so much progress in, in so many ways and yet we've really stalled in terms of um, you know, women's rise in leadership positions. Um, we've really stalled in terms of who does kind of the bulk of the work at home and why. Why is that? And, and I really came to see, you know, when you look at, say, the implicit association tests that 
people do you know, what? being done. The implicit association test. So what, what is that? that? There are some fascinating tests that, that are being done uh, by psychologists at Harvard and the University of Virginia where what they want to try to do is test our unconscious bias. Ah. You know, our brains are de- uh, we developed to sort things very quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it, it's, it's something that served us well as humans. It's why we were able to survive because very quickly our brains sort threat from non-threat. You know, you had to understand very quickly, is that a tiger ready, waiting to chase me and eat me, or is that a plant that I can eat? So early on in human history, we needed that ability to sort quickly. Well, we've continued to have that. Uh, it, our brains are still wired to do that kind of sorting, uh, although it doesn't really serve us anymore. So is that is that part of the explanation for the stalled revolution in uh, the advance of uh, women in society? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's, it's, it was one of the things that I found really surprising because I had thought that we had made more progress. But when you study these unconscious biases, what mm. they found is that you know, more than three-fourths of the people who take these tests, and there have been millions of them, they automatically associate male career, female family, and that even more women have more of that bias. More women sort people that way. So we have these automatic associations right. that, that men are supposed to be the ideal worker at work and women are supposed to be the ideal mother at home, and that that really is, is a lot of, it's a big part of why we're stuck. So what advice do you have in your book about how to change that and, and in particular how to bring more of the play part into life and how that really does enrich your, your work experience and, and your performance. Right. Well, just very briefly with the, you know, in the, on the love stuff with the unconscious bias, the first and most important thing to do is be aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's unconscious because most of us don't even recognize that we're still doing it. And then what you need to do is rewire yourself. Catch yourself when you're starting to make automatic assumptions about things. You know, uh, when, you, when you see the, the, the stay-at-home dad and you, you, know, you automatically recoil and think, oh, what's wrong with him? Check yourself. Why, do you, why are you having that reaction? Um, start surrounding yourself with images that kind of challenge those traditional views. So that's, a, that's an important thing, um, you know, in, that will help go a long way in terms of bringing more gender equity, if you will, at home, which will then bring more equity in the workplace. And then when you ask about play and why it's important, well, that was probably one of the biggest revelations to me. I think as a pretty typical American, I had always valued work, and I thought that I actually had a really hard time telling people I was writing a book about leisure. It seemed sort of silly and unimportant. And yet, uh, I came to find that leisure is incredibly important, that really in those moments away from work and away from the the getting and doing of daily life, when you have that moment of idleness or you're able to daydream, that that's really where innovation and creativity mm-hmm. lives. That's when uh, you know the wheel has been created. That's when civilization has been created. Philosophers have argued for years. That's when you're not bombarded by the, all that psychological interference, right? All the things that you're worried about. The, the, the time away is, a, is an open space for thinking about new possibilities. Right. And what's fascinating is that neuroscience is finding that our brains are actually most active when we are most idle. So how do you build that into your life in a, in a, in a realistic way? What's, what's the best advice you have based on your research for most Americans in our harried world? Well, the first thing that you've got to do is take a breath and pause. 
That's the absolute most important thing that you can do is, is to disrupt that cycle of busyness and just take that moment. And if you have to schedule it and schedule it regularly, then that's what you've got to do. And it doesn't have so to be So you're week. saying schedule a time to breathe? Yes. Yes. Schedule a time to pause. Even if it's just a, a moment? Even if it's just a moment. If it's you hang up the phone and you stop and pause... You have the intention that you're going to pause at some point. Ah, the, the intention. Day. That's what's key, right? That's the key. You know, I, I loved it. I talked to a woman who um, is a wonderful teacher about of mindfulness, and the book talks about not only the effect of stress on the brain, and it's actually shrinking our brains, but the effect of mindfulness, uh, that kind of taking that step of time out of time, if you will, that that's actually expanding our gray matter, our brains. So that's very hopeful and one of the things that I loved about her, what she'd said, is that she sets the intention every day of setting aside some kind of time to pause or reflect or just disrupt the, just jump off the treadmill. And she said, but she gives herself a back door, which is it doesn't matter how long it is. And so sometimes on really busy days, it's sitting on the side of her, uh, of her bed at the end of the day, just taking five breaths. She said, that's enough. And so, that's something that Really, anybody can do. And I think that's a, a just a wonderful note for us to, to close on because uh, your message about you know overcoming the sense of being overwhelmed is, is really about something that all of us can do by having the intention to take some time to just think uh, and to pause. And that's something that we all have as uh, something that's available to us. Do we not? Absolutely. Absolutely. More than we think. More than we think. If you just shift your mind a bit, and your book is very helpful in helping people to do that. So if you want to find out more about Bridget, be sure to visit her online at BridgetSchulte.com. That's B-R-I-G-I-D-S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. Check out her Facebook page. um, And you can also follow her on Twitter at Bridget Schulte, as I do. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bridget Schulte and that it provoked your thinking about what you can do to reduce the feeling of being overwhelmed by the demands of modern life. For decades now, my work has focused on providing ideas and tools for people in all kinds of settings to help them gain a greater sense of control, to feel more like leaders of their lives. Schulte's work is a wonderful example of how a thoughtful and courageous journalist can bring powerful stories to bear on this issue. The wisdom she draws from her own experiences, the narratives she's gathered, and from research in psychology and sociology is made easily accessible and useful in her powerful book, Overwhelmed. There's much to think about listening to her talk about her work, but let me focus on one issue I think almost everyone can relate to and do something about to make life a little more peaceful. Here, then, is a challenge for you. An invitation. Ask yourself, how much leisure time do you invest in each week? On average. Why not try simply keeping track of how you spend your time? Even just tracking your your leisure time, your relaxation time, however you define that. 
and then see if there are any opportunities for you to find a bit more relaxation for yourself. And then try using some more of your time, even if it's just a few minutes, but consciously and deliberately helping yourself to restore and rejuvenate so you can be more present for those who matter most to you, so you can feel a little less overwhelmed by it all. Let me know what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. So you can get in touch with me directly, friedmanatwharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to learn more about improving performance in all parts of life, your work, home, community, and yourself, your mind, body, and spirit, by creating greater harmony among these different parts, it can be done. We have research that shows that this is true. Visit totalleadership.org. You can see that research there, as well as free chapters from all my books and lots of free tools and tips. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.